And now I'm going to go to the scripture reading for today, which is Acts 16, verse 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money from her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. All right, thank you very much. Everybody good? I'm going to be honest with you, I got really emotional during that worship set, and I was all, it's cool, pull it together, pull it together, tough, be strong, and every time I did, I would open my eyes and look at the lyrics and listen to this and just go again, I'm like, crap, okay, but maybe that'll be useful, who knows, Um, okay, so like I said, uh, this month, we're pretty much for the month of August, spending time, uh, what month is it, February, Who, who even knows or cares anymore? Whatever. Uh, it's really, doesn't matter what month it is. Um, and so for this month though, whatever month we happen to be in, we're going to spend time in Acts chapter 16. And we are going to, so last week we sort of skipped to the end. I was reading about this passage last week and I wasn't quite ready. There was some fascinating stuff and I wanted to go down that rabbit hole and I did. And that's what we're doing today. Um, and so last week had a lot to do with sort of like, it I came at you pretty hard with justice and talking about oppression and how it functions and how it works and what you can do about it. Um, Today's going to be a little lighter. I'm going to give us some context and then uh, I'm going to give some pastoral advice for the second half about sort of um, how we can sort of practice um, the presence of God in this world in in sort of these kinds of situations. Um, And so before I go, though, before I get started on that, I wanted to... uh, mention two things. If you are in need of spiritual counsel, um, if you want to talk through some theological concepts, if you need some guidance on the formation of your theology, uh, my email is open. I'm not on Facebook anymore. There's too many white supremacists, honestly. (laughs) Um, And so I got over that. Um, And uh, so email me, tommy at watermarktampa.com, and we can do like a Zoom call and prayer session, and we can talk theology. Or email us, like elders at watermarktampa.com. And uh, we'd love to help you out there. Also, um, infection rates are going down rather quickly. So this is good um, because our numbers go up as infection rates go down. So uh, these things are tied together. We're not just like making stuff up. Um, And so what that means is um, in the coming weeks, there'll probably be more people in here um, but that also means that we need people to serve in the children's ministry. Um, we used to have over 100 volunteers um, in the year 2020 BC. Um, and we had over 100 children's volunteers back there. I think right now we're pushing like 11 or 12. Um, but I, that's understandable. People aren't going out, people aren't doing stuff, and I get that. If you're not comfortable with it, don't sign up. 
But if you are, or if you've been vaccinated, or if you're like, you know, if you're, if you're interested, like, and they're, they're very safe, there's air purifiers, their windows are open, everyone's wearing masks and stuff like that. Um, we're doing whatever we can. So if you can help us in that way, that would be amazing. Um, because oftentimes, the staff kids alone fill up most of the spaces. And so a lot of staff kids have to stay home. Um, so we need, we need help with that. So if that's you, hit us up. Um, let me pray, and then we're going to jump into this passage, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. I lift up all those who are gathered here with us. Um, thank you for them. Fill them with joy and give them uh, presence and, and let them be present here with us, um, understanding the importance of the gathering um, that we have missed for so long. And uh, I lift up all those who are watching online with us. I pray that you'd be present with them, make them feel unified with us, encourage them, give them what they need. Um, Guide us all collectively into the future that you are building. We are your instruments. We are your tools. Uh, use us to help you build it. Thank you, Father. In your name. Amen. Okay. So, oh, um, trying to get a hold of my slides here. Okay. So, uh, story time. Okay. Um, not my story. Luke's story. He just tells a story here. So, they're in Philippi. There's no synagogue in Philippi. And so, when there's no synagogue in an ancient Roman city, the Jewish people gather down by the water and they do their daily prayers in a specific place. And so there's a woman named Lydia. And Lydia has a bit of a house church there. And she gathers and leads the people through prayer. Lydia has with her uh, household, she's the head of a household, which means um, it's not like a, in the Bible, what you don't see, despite what you may have heard, what you don't see is a nuclear family, a husband and wife and their kids living in a house together. What you see is a household, a collection of people all serving the the paterfamilia, which is like the Lord of the house. And they work for the glory of the Lord because as his honor goes up, their honor moves up in society, okay? So, by the way, when you read those passages in the Bible that talk about the glory of the, working for the glory of the Lord, do all things for the, um, to the glory of the Lord, that's cultural language, saying that like we are a family, we are a household, we're together, and Jesus is our Lord, and we serve the honor of Jesus. So, there's this woman named Lydia, and, and they go down and they pray with her, and Paul teaches her um, about the things of Christ, and on his way down one day, um, Luke tells us this. He says, once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future, and she earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. So she earned a great deal of money, but not for her, because she's a slave, and it's for her owners. Um, now, uh, sort of, uh, let's see, where am I going to start here? Uh, um, I'm going to jump right into this. The, the word that is used to describe, because this is sometimes where, where modern Christians have a hard time oftentimes accepting um, spiritual beings, right? Um, demons and angels and stuff like that. We're educated children of the Enlightenment. That, that's just not possible, stuff like that. But it's in the text, so what do we do with it? Um, how are we to think of this kind of thing? Um, I always encourage you to sort of put aside your reservations about stuff, jump into the text, Look at what's going on, receive it as it's given, um, and then ponder what it means. Um, so you have, uh, it says right here, she had a spirit. But if you read this in the Greek, it's, it's a, it doesn't just say spirit. The word for spirit is pneuma. It says pneuma pythona. Um, and it literally means the spirit of the python. <laughs> spirit of the python. She has the spirit of the python in her. And that means nothing to you. But to the ancient people, it meant a lot. It's a specific thing that they viewed her as having. Um, to understand what this means, and this is where we're going to go sort of 
into the ancient context here. And I love this stuff, and this is why I had to stop and go to the other passage and come back, because there's so much here. Um, to really understand in Greek mythology what's going on here, in Greek mythology, the python, uh, oftentimes they just called it the serpent, um, and it was represented oftentimes by a medieval-style dragon living at the center of the earth, and it would come up through these caves and these cracks and crevices. Um, um, oh, I wonder how far to... Uh, all this information pops into my head when I start talking about this stuff, and I'm trying to like filter myself, like don't bore these people. Um, okay, so the, the python snake in the ancient world was believed to be able to capture people in a hypnotic state with its gaze. Okay, what does this remind you of? Jungle Book, right? Ka, and his eyes are all swirly, and he's like, believe in me, kind of thing. Um, and he's like staring at him. And that comes from ancient Greek mythology. They believed that the center of the earth was where this python lived, and he guarded the entrance to the center of the earth, and the entrance was usually caves and stuff like that, um, specifically like springs, all of that. So, to, to really understand this, oh, by the way, here's a great sculpture from ancient Rome about this. Check this dude out, holding, yeah, wrestling the, the python. Um, to understand why she is described in this way, we have to go to the Greek city of Delphi in a region, um, in a region literally called Pytho. Um, and so in Delphi, you would find this. This is the, the temple of the oracle of Delphi. And at the center of this temple, there was a, in the circle here, in the middle, there's like this big crack in the ground. Um, and there was this mist that was coming up out of the crack in the middle of the ground. Um, and they found, sorry, Michael, I'm going to adjust this again. One day I'm going to get a new kind of microphone that now we're going to have to touch again. Um, and so what, what happens is, what they found was that there was a woman who would sit next to the, the hole in the ground, the crack with the steam coming out, and she would be able to sort of tell the future. Or she would, as they interpret it, tell the future. She would have these sort of visions, um, and she would, it was sort of this connection that they believed that the oracle had, and they built a temple over it, um, and they believed that this is where sort of Python, the Python god lived down there. Um, and he was sort of giving these messages to the people. He sort of puts her in a hypnotic trance. And she gives these messages to the people. And so the woman, uh, known as the Oracle of Delphi, um, oftentimes she was even called Pythia. And she was famous across the Greco-Roman world for her ability to, ability to discern the future and to have divine discernment and guidance for other people. So she would, she would sit on this platform that was suspended under like this tripod, three poles, over the crack in the ground, and she would sit suspended on this thing inside the, the, the basement of the temple, over the crack with the fumes coming out, um, and she would go into a trance, and she would mumble, and she would say weird things, and the priests would gather around her, and they would write down the things that she's saying, and they would take these things that she is saying uh, to the uh, the poets and the scribes, and they would write these things into songs, and they would take these songs and make like poetry and songs, and they would read them out to the people who were looking to have their fortunes told or guidance given or uh, the answers that they were looking for. Um, and this was what they did, a fascinating culture there uh, in Delphi with, with this oracle. So let me sort of um, give you sort of, look, here's what, sort of what this would look like. She's got her arms up like this, all these guys sort of gathered around, and they built sort of these decorations over the pit there. Um, so I want to I sort of put this in perspective, what this would look like, why would you go to her, and what would you do? So let's say you were a first century farmer who finds a deposit of fine marble on your land. You're tilling your ground, and you hit 
something and you're like, oh, what is this? And you move the plow and you dig and it's marble. Marble's very expensive. You can use this. You can sell this. You can suddenly become sort of the owner of um, sort of a, 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 a mine that mines this marble and sells it to, because this is what all the temples are built out of. Um, the problem is you're a farmer and you can't just switch careers because each career has a bit of a guild and a god that that guild worships. So if you're a farmer and you want to suddenly become a miner for marble, um, you can't just stop farming because your god will get mad, your local deity, and you can't just start going, doing marble because they already have a guild and a god that, worship, that they worship, and so you have to make a decision um, that you don't have all the details on. If I stop farming and I start digging marble and selling that, am I going to make my god mad? And because the second you stop, all the people in your sort of um, in your guild are going to say this. They're going to say, hold up, what are you doing? You're going to upset the gods. The crops are going to stop growing. What are we going to do if you quit? You can't quit. So off to Delphi you go. You go to the place where this woman is sitting, and you go to the foot of the stairs, oftentimes four, five, six hundred mile journey, and you go to the oracle, and you ask, you, you, go, you go, and there's these giant doors. This is the steps where you would stand, and there are these giant, massive swinging doors attached over here somewhere, like, like 30 feet high, and, and you would sort of pound on the door, and the priest would come, the giant door swings open, both would come, he comes out, he's like, can I help you? I need to speak to the oracle. I need to know how to proceed in life. I have no answers. I don't know anything. I don't know what to do. I was a farmer. I'd like to become a seller of marble and a miner. Okay, I'll ask the oracle. And they would slam these giant doors shut, and you would wait. Oftentimes, like hours, days, weeks, oftentimes months. Um, You would wait so long that they, they even built little board games around on the ground outside, so it's something that you can do while you're waiting for the snake to talk to the lady. It's the weirdest sentence I've ever said. Um, so that you can know what to do. And, and as you're waiting, you're praying, you're talking to your God, you're like, I, I hope that, that I can get an answer. I don't want to make my God mad. Um, what do I do? And eventually, the people go and they talk to the oracle and they, they, they come out and, and they read you sort of the, the poem that they wrote and they help you interpret it. Um, we have some of these ancient things um, that, that they've written, and let me see, one of them is um, this king went to the Oracle of Delphi and asked, ah, I want to wage war against this country, should I do this or not? And the Oracle sent back the message, if you go to war, you will destroy a great nation. And they're like, sweet, let's go to war. And she was actually talking about their nation, and they lost, and the whole thing fell and died. But it was just nebulous enough so that you don't really know what's going on and what to believe, so you go along with it. Um, and so the people in the ancient world oftentimes are struggling with the th- same things that, that we are. They're desperate for some grounding and some center. What do I do in this situation? You probably asked that this week about relationships, about things that, that you are dealing with, about jobs, about whether or not you should move, whether or not you continue to do this thing in the situation that we find ourselves in. What do you do? Um, they're searching for a way to tell them how to act and how to move through the world, and little did they know that this is exactly what the Christians were bringing. What the Christians were bringing them was a method whereby you could know how to move through the world and how you should structure your life. And it's centered upon 
a man, Jesus, and they would tell his stories. And Jesus is the full revelation of God. And if you live in a way that is Christ-like, you never have to ponder whether or not you are in the right or the wrong. The example is there, and you can live it, and you can follow it. Um, the question has always been, how do I deal with the unknowns in life? And Christianity, at its root, answered this. Um, and it answers it by, live a life that is Christ-like. Put your faith in Christ. This word faith is the Greek word pistis, which really means more allegiance than anything else. Trust in the teachings of Christ over and above everyone else. And follow the path of Jesus. Um, so let's go back to this slave girl. We have this passage here. This slave girl, for whatever reason, is believed to be able to do whatever this oracle could do. People would come to her and they would ask for guidance because the oracle of Delphi is 400 miles away. And I don't want to travel that far because it takes months in the first century. And so they come to this girl and her slave owners are making lots of money off of her. Now, there's several options as to what exactly is going on here. How she is able to do this. Perhaps she has some kind of psychological issues and she mumbles and babbles and they interpret this as something that is different. Perhaps, um, perhaps her slave masters honestly use some kind of substance to keep her high because that's actually what's happening in the Oracle of Delphi. What we have found out is that there are fumes coming up out of this, out of this hole in the ground that makes the Oracle stoned out of her gourd and she's really high and she's mumbling and that's what they're writing down. So maybe... They are abusing this girl in this way, or maybe it is what Paul and Luke say, that she is possessed by a spirit who presents itself in this way, in which case she needs freedom. I know oftentimes people hear that like, hold on, demons and spirits and all that. Yeah, I would like to point out, if you don't want to accept that divine thing, you're swapping one miracle for another because Paul actually heals her. <laughs> So at some point, you're going to have to accept what you're reading here in this particular passage and many others um, when you come to these uh, passages like this. Um, there is a bit of a mystery when you're reading the Bible. You don't understand it. That's okay. Um, the reason we are given the Nicene Creed, actually in early Christianity, is because so many people were trying to define God that they gave us the Nicene Creed, which helps us to understand who God is without strictly defining God. Because when you define God, you inherently end up in error and heresy. I dare you, try to define God, define the Trinity in some way, you will ultimately, we talked about this last year, I went in depth into the ideas of the Trinitarian heresies of the early church. When you try to define the Trinity and how it works and how it functions and all that, you will ultimately, the, the more you define it, end up in a Trinitarian heresy. The idea is that you cannot put your finger on God. You cannot define God, but you can know exactly what God is like by looking at Jesus. Um, and so... Um, Let's go a little farther. So this girl's following, this girl is following Paul as they're heading down there. Here's what it says. It says, she followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. And finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. Okay. This sets off a series of... Um, events which land Paul in prison, and we're going to talk about that stuff um, in, the, in the coming weeks. Um, but the proclamation that she has made, I want to talk about that, because the proclamation that she has made, when it's read oftentimes by the modern Christian audience, um, you're not seeing what a Roman Gentile in Philippi would have seen, what they would have heard. Um, so the proclamation that she is making 
Uh, she's saying that, that they are servants of slaves, is what she says, slaves of the Most High God. Um, and to someone living in Philippi, that wouldn't mean they wouldn't have in their brains the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She didn't say that, and that's honestly not what she's thinking. She didn't know about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She's likely talking about Zeus or maybe some other local deity. Um, and she's saying, uh, basically, it would mean... It would mean um, and she's talking about salvation as well. She says uh, salvation wouldn't mean basically that what, it, what salvation means to the Jew and the Christian in the first century. Um, it wouldn't mean in her mind what it means to us today. Um, and I'm not saying you're wrong to read it that way, but I, I like to pull out the minds of the original readers as much as we possibly can so we can get to the heart of the meaning of the whole thing. Um, it wouldn't mean entry into God's new creation uh, and overcoming corruption and sin and death. That's not what she's talking about when she talks about salvation. When she talks, when she says, these men are servants of the most high God, she's probably saying Zeus, honestly. Paul had already been confused with Zeus about three chapters earlier. Um, these men are servants of the most high God and they're bringing salvation. When she says salvation, she probably most likely means health, prosperity, rescue from some kind of disaster. And you can see that if you look at Acts 16, 30 through 31 where they sort of interact with the Roman soldier and they talk to him this way. Um, and we're going to, again, talk about that next week. So, Paul turns to her and says, in the name of Jesus, not Zeus, not Hermes, not Apollo, not Python, none of it, not Pythia, like, in the name of Jesus, I command the spirit to get out of her. And he heals her in the name of Jesus. He is very direct that he acts and moves through this world in the name of of Jesus. And I think that is vital, and I think that's something to wrap our minds around, because we rarely ever say, in the name of Jesus, unless we're ending a prayer to thank God for our ravioli. Like, we rarely actually ponder what that means to do something in the name of Jesus. Um, whenever the apostles heal somebody, uh, whenever they help someone in, in some way, they always claimed, even when they did some good deed, they claimed to do it in the name of Jesus, so that there is no confusion. Because everyone in that world and everyone in our world is doing things in the name of something else. Not themselves, sometimes themselves, if it's like a selfish act. But most of the time, we are acting and moving and doing things in the name of an ideology, in the name of, of oftentimes, um, you know, they would say, um, they would say in, in the name of Rome, they would say in the name of the emperor, in the name of some god. Um, but, but Paul and, and Barnabas and Luke aren't doing things because they're not doing it in the, name of, in the name of being good people or in the name of earning high honors in any way. Um, they didn't say what they said and do what they did because of some cultural tide that had shifted and moved in some particular way. It was because they understood what it meant to be Christ-like and they wanted the, everyone to, to know that the reason they seemed so bizarre in the way that they lived, the reason they were generous with their money, the reason that they spent time with low-honor people, the reason that they purposely... Um, didn't take part in high honor society events and activities was because they came in the name of Jesus, not Apollo, not Zeus, no one else. And this is how Jesus is. The one who gave up all honor, all high status to become a poor, wandering Jewish teacher, an oppressed minority in the first century, born not in a palace but in a manger, this is the same thing that led Paul to shift his life from Pharisee, high honor status Pharisee, to literally becoming a tent maker from Tarsus, 
which we have an ancient letter from Dio Chrysostom that calls the linen workers of Tarsus basically the scum of the earth. That is why he chose this profession. He didn't do it so he could be a bivocational pastor. He did it because it would tarnish his reputation as Jesus tarnished his own reputation by entering into low-status society, eating with prostitutes and beggars, and spending time with the rejects of society, making his own disciples, all of those who had failed to become rabbis. That's why they were fishing. And so this is what Jesus is doing. And so this is what Paul and Barnabas and Luke are also now doing. It's something that is so overlooked to do things in the name of Jesus. It's something that's so overlooked in modern Christianity. The simple answer for the follower of Jesus when asked, how do you know what is right or wrong? I don't, but Jesus does. And so I do what I'm doing in the name of Jesus. And I do everything I can in a way that is Christiform so I can look and form my life more and more like Christ. We have a center. That's what Jesus has given us. That is the heart of Christianity, is that we have a center a person who we follow, a person who we mimic and try to be like. It is not a bunch of concepts that we must receive and just simply believe. It is a formation of our own lives around a person. It is a relationship. It is a human being that walked this earth, that suffered and died revealing, like we talked about last week, the sins of the world as he hangs on this cross, a perfect man. And then rises again and leads us in the same path that he was in. Now everything I did, you, church, will do. And so the things we do, we do in the name of Jesus. Um, We do many things in the name of cultural ideas. And a lot of these cultural ideas are good. But as modern people, we need to ponder how many things that we are doing strictly because they are cultural ideas that we have deemed good, that we want to be seen as. Good things like equality and justice and love and morals and ethics and, and, and cultural traditions oftentimes can be beautiful and good and important and centering. But the difficulty is, often that, is that oftentimes behind these things there is no base level foundation. If you're going to do what is good and what is just, how are you defining what is good? How are you defining what is just? If you're going to do something loving, how are you defining love? Where is the center of the whole thing? Is it more loving to kill the enemies of an oppressed person or to help restore these enemies into a relationship with the oppressed person and make them equals? What's more loving? That's a hard question to answer. Unless you have Christ who showed us exactly how it works. What's, and, and when we seek things like equality, like how, how do we define this? Is it equality of opportunity? Is it equality of of how things end up in the end, quality of results. How are we defining this? And that's where debates always pop up. And we look to Christ to answer these questions. This is what we do. We are Christians. Everything we do, we do in the name of Christ and is defined by Christ. The church does this, um, but we do these good things, but rarely do we actually invoke the name of Christ in these sentences, which is very telling. When you make a statement about what is right and wrong, is it something that would have come out of the mouth of Christ? We have to ask this question. The things that you say, the things that you believe, and you say them out loud, can you stand there and imagine Jesus saying these things out of his mouth? If you cannot, these are likely things which you should not be saying. Um, I've gathered some things that I read this week. I would like to read some of them to you. 
I'm calling it things that Tommy saw Christians say this week that Jesus would never say. <laughs> These are just from Twitter, okay? Because I'm, I know there's good stuff on Facebook. I know there is. I've been there. But I'm just going to show you some of the ones that I, I gathered this week, okay? Let's work our way through them. This is why we need the death penalty. People like this cannot continue to be allowed to live. I grew up thinking this way. I have lots of Christian friends who think this way. I want to be blunt and clear. This is not something Jesus would ever say. Ever. And we never stop to ponder, like, the validity of our thoughts because they're framed in America, the nation in which we live, it's the, it's the air that we breathe. Um, let's keep moving. I, I have, maybe I have too many of these. That guy is an animal. He has always been one. These are Christians saying these things. Jesus would not say these things. That's why I put his name at the end. I do this a lot. When I'm, when, sometimes when I'm writing something, I'll look back and I'll be like, could I put like dash Jesus at the end of this? I don't think I could. I should delete it is what I should do. Um, let's go a little farther. Uh, Let's just have a civil war and get it over with already. Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> this was a pastor. Anyways, let's go a little farther. I'm sick and tired of people looking for a handout. Nope, can't think of a single instance in which Jesus would ever say anything like that. Uh, let's go a little farther. This one's on the bottom here. I might have to read it out to you. Oh, oh it didn't go. Um... I'm so glad he's dead, rot in hell. At some point, the church needs to begin to do things in the name of Jesus, not in the name of yourself, not in the name of your ideology, not in the name of your people, in the name of Christ, who's forming a new people, who's forming a new image, who's forming a new way of moving throughout this world. I would encourage you, if you're not sure if something is right or wrong that you have just read, put it on the lips of Christ. Can it be said in the name of Jesus? Can it be done in the name of Christ? If it can't, you have your answer. This will disrupt so many things that you say throughout your week. This will disrupt so many decisions that you make. This will disrupt your entire life. And that's the point. Jesus is not supposed to fit into your life. You are supposed to organize and order your life around the teachings and the person of Christ. So, say what you are going to say and do what you're going to do in the name of Jesus. Not only is it simply better than doing things in the name of your party and your people and your states, your country, etc., it's also a method whereby you can stay firmly in the lane of Christ-likeness. And when you pray, and you get to the end of that prayer, and you tack on that closing word that lets everyone know they can open their eyes. In the name of Jesus, amen. That statement at the end should guide your prayers. If the things that you are praying for are not things that rest upon the lips of Christ and in the heart of Christ, perhaps you should not be praying for these things. Perhaps this is not the goal. Um... Following Jesus requires presence of mind. It, it requires you to be present with Christ as you move throughout your day. So what else does it mean that they cast out the Spirit in the name of Jesus? Um, 
man. It means that the money that depended on oppression ceased to flow. Any money at all that was flowing in any direction that was only flowing because of oppression stopped. That's what landed them in prison, by the way. That's what landed them. Did you see the response? These men are Jews. Instantly it goes racial. It's always somebody on the other side that we blame. Someone who's not like us. But the fact is they were taking part in the enslavement and, and, and the trafficking of this young girl. And they were profiting from it. And that came to a halt. Early on in... Uh, uh, hold on. What do I got here? Early on in, in American history, there were a lot of debates about the economic effects of the abolition of slavery. You can ask a lot of questions about why did chattel slavery in America last three quarters of a century longer than it did in British Empire? Because the flow of money was good. And it's very hard to change your mind when you are actively being paid to believe that thing, to justify that thing. It's very hard to walk away from that kind of profit. It was economically beneficial. Our theology is oftentimes more likely to flow from our economics than from Jesus. And I hope you understand that. A lot of the things that you hold to be true about God were given to you because it was economically beneficial to believe these things. And this is why we must do things in the name of Christ to remove the other gods in our life from which we move. If you look at the ancient ar ar arguments in the, at the beginning of, of the American church, uh, the, the really just the sprouting of evangelicalism, and if you look at the arguments that they were making for why they should continue to own slaves, no one is calling upon the teachings of Jesus. They're going everywhere else in the Bible as if Jesus is just an equal voice amongst all the other people, and he's not. Everyone else must be read through the lens of Christ himself. The early church let their economics flow from their understanding of Christ, not their ability to create income or find happiness. Their economics had nothing to do with their own happiness. It had nothing to do with theological and economic structures that were beneficial for everyone. They were simply based upon what is Christ-like and what is not. And we do the things that are Christ-like, and we don't do the things that are not Christ-like. They rejected slave labor in the church. They encouraged generosity as siblings. They forgave debts. They took outsiders the sick, the dying, etc., and they brought them in and made them their siblings. They didn't just call them their brothers. It wasn't just a term of endearment. They called them their family and their siblings, and they relied on each other to live and move through life together. They worked to save up money to free each other from debt, economic slavery. Every night, Christians would go down to the Roman Colosseum and rescue the babies that had been abandoned because they were, they were female, and people wanted boys. And so, and so, like, if, if a child is born, we have letters from, I've, I've read them here before, from a, a Roman centurion who tells his wife, he writes, there, he's away at war, and he writes and says, um, if the baby's a girl, expose it, uh, and we'll try again for a boy. Expose it means let it out there. Like, just put it out on the road and abandon it for the dogs to eat, for the birds to peck at. Abandon these babies. And every night, the Christians would sweep through the empire, gathering up all the babies, primarily like 95% of them, little girls, and bringing them in, and they built an army of Christian women that spread the gospel. It's, it's really a profound, beautiful thing. Um, we see so many companies today wrestling with, with simple things that, that the church can easily answer. 
we see them wrestling with like, how much do I, do I pay my employees? How do I, um, how do I, and, and this is, this is where I lose people because we have a lot of, a lot of business people. Um, and that's okay. Ponder what I'm saying, please. Um, they're wondering how they should pay their employees. It's going to cut in on profits. It's going to, if I raise the, 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 the salary of my employees, what am I going to do? Um, we see a lot of companies today wrestling with how much to provide for their people. Well, this is where Christians should shine, where we should set an example. Um, we, so at Watermark, I mean, we've had part-time employees for a decade, and we started from the very beginning. We've always said, um, we're never paying anyone less than $15 an hour a decade ago. Um, and that's the baseline, and then it goes up. Because we believe when you enter into a, an exchange of money, an employment situation with somebody, this is a Christ-like relationship. I want you to think about this. You are giving them work and providing for their livelihood. They are bringing work to you and providing for your livelihood. This is a two-sided thing. This is a relationship. This is the exact reason Paul was raising money, traveling around to Gentile churches, raising money for the Jewish church in Jerusalem. Because he knows the exchange of money brings about relationship. And that can either be bitter and angry, or it can be beautiful and taking care of people underneath you. Um... The thinking is that, as far as I'm concerned, the thinking of Christians should be, if I can't have this thing without truly providing for somebody's needs, I guess I don't get to have the thing. That's a self-sacrificial way to live. It's a Christ-like way to live. Um, the church must always be a people-first organization. And when churches start making decisions that, that hurt people at the expense of their image or their bottom line, the church is working in the name of the goddess of mammon, not the name of Jesus. We must ponder every decision, every interaction, every exchange of money. We must ponder it as if, as if we are the image of Christ entering into this moment. Um, what is the Christ-like thing to do? Even though it oftentimes involves me giving up some things that I have and desire and want so that this person can live. There's nothing more godly than that. These are questions that we should ask. We as Christians should always be the first. We should be the city on the hill that everyone looks to and say, it seems to be working out well. Um, we should be leading the way in these kinds of things. Employment, the exchange of money and services was seen by the early church as a relationship. Uh, a, a, a relationship building interaction. I would encourage you if you're in a position of, of uh, if you're in a position to provide more for somebody, do it. If you can. It's a Christ-like thing to do. Um, if you can, do it. If you need more, don't try and get it off the backs of the difficulties of others. We are not the children of Israel who should be constantly asked by our slave master Pharaoh to make more with less. We have been called to have regular intervals of Sabbath and rest and understand that we are not just, we're not human, humans doing, we are human beings. Like this is what we are and this is how we should live. Um, that's why Paul says in the very next chapter, he says, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. We are not the offspring of nationalism. We are not the offspring of capitalism or socialism 
or any other ism that, that, that human beings and empires want to invent. We are the offspring of Christ. And the things that we do, the words that we say should rest on the lips of Christ. The things that we do with our hands should come as if they are coming from the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. And at some point, the church needs to begin to think deeply about how we have lived in ways that are no different than the methods of the world. If our answers are the same answers as them, what use is Jesus anyways? What's the purpose? What's the point? We are born of the words of Jesus. We're born of his life and his actions. And so if I were to like sort of do a, a benediction or something for this week, I would ask you and encourage you to audit your thoughts and actions every day. Maybe perhaps live as you have for a few days, and I want you to get to the end of your day. I want you to pull out a piece of paper, and I want you to audit the things that you did that day. And I want you to try to write down some of the things that would never have rested on the lips of Jesus. I did this a couple of times this week. It was brutal. The thoughts that you had that would not be in the mind or heart of Jesus. Can you say what you are saying in the name of Jesus? If not, then there's an area of your life here that, that has not been formed by Christ. And so there needs to be some repentance. And as a church pursuing Christiformity, this should be our posture. Always searching our hearts and our minds, coming to the table where we would normally have communion and we will again and I believe it's soon. And when we come to the table, we look at the body of Christ and the blood of Christ and we see that it was broken for us. To mend the things that have been broken in us, to bring salvation to us, And we hear Jesus inviting us and saying, I want you to follow me. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. I want you to follow me. Understanding that this is not just something for our benefit. This is a practice. And as we move into the world, our body, the church, must be broken and poured out for the healing and the salvation of all those who need it in every situation. Helping them to discern the way forward in light the revelation of Christ. And that revelation is very simple. God is like Jesus. We have not always known that God is like Jesus, but now we do. And that is the center of where we move from. And so I'm gonna close this in a word of prayer. And then we will uh, do our collect prayer together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place, these people. I pray that uh, we would be gracious um, with ourselves, with each other, knowing that we are not finished. We are people on a journey. And as we all collectively crawl towards you, we are constantly being awakened to the ways that we do not represent you well. I pray that we would shift that. I pray that we would be able to turn the things that, that we think and the things that we say and the, the way that we move through this world, turn it into your presence, not ours. May we learn to move within you, to live with, from, from the place of your heart, not ours the spirit, not our flesh. And guide us into your future. Help us to build it alongside of you. When people look at us, let them, let them know what, what God is like. Let us be that Christ-like. Thank you, Father, for my brothers and sisters. Thank you for the grace and mercy that we have with each other. We love you. Amen. So do me a favor. Stand with me. And let's do a call like prayer nice and loud, shall we? Ready? Here we go. Eternal God. 
Your son, Jesus Christ, is the way, the truth, and the life for all creation. Grant us grace to walk in his way, to rejoice in truth, and to share in risen life, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Grace and peace. Love you all. Have the best Sunday afternoon of your life. Take a good nap for me.